This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I've been in the news business for a few years now, and here's a statistic that I found interesting. I'm not blind to the fact that TikTok is a thing, a huge thing, but a third of American adults under 30 regularly get their news from TikTok. That caught my attention, to say the least. I came across that figure in a piece by my colleague, Claire Malone, who covers media for The New Yorker. And Claire writes this, more and more voters are forming opinions based on the funny video that their cousin's husband's sister shared in the group chat. In other words, whether I like it or not, memes matter. Claire Malone joins us now. Claire, one of the quotes in your piece just stays with me. A right-wing influencer says the following, the left can't meme, but we can. What does that mean? Uh, It basically means the left is too self-righteous and sanctimonious and worried about being politically correct that they can't be funny. But the right-wing can be funny and go there. They can say the things everyone thinks um, but doesn't actually say out loud. I think that's what he means there. I see. And is he right? I think there's some truth to it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's one of the reasons why, you know, I talked to this professor, Ryan Milner, who studies memes. He's a he's a he's a he's an academic memeologist. (laughs) (laughs) You can make a living at that. And he's, he basically said, you know, like the reason why right wing memes are so successful is because in American uh, right wing ideology of 2024, it's a very black and white thing. Right. Um, you know, fluid gender identity is a total joke. We all know that. That's the right wing thinking. So we can make the funny joke uh, that, frankly, probably elicits a lot of uh, maybe inappropriate laughter from people who consider themselves Democrats, but they wouldn't right. maybe make the joke themselves. But I think the right wing has what's the phrase we all like to say has created a permission structure for that kind of humor because it is a more black and white ideology. This is how America should be. This is how it shouldn't be. So let's start with. This meme of Biden's birthday cake and other age-related memes. This is a picture of Joe Biden that was posted on his Instagram. He turned 81 in November. Mm-hmm. And um, it is a a birthday cake absolutely alight, it engulfed looks, it, it in It looks flames. like a forest fire on top of a chocolate cake. That's right. right. And Biden is sitting there smiling at mm-hmm. a— 
you know, a glossy mahogany table. And the caption says, turns out on your 146th birthday, you run out of space for candles. Okay. Okay. That's They're all, trying, in, all in good fun. Basically, the, the, the Biden campaign has realized that, that he will not get younger. And so the way to deal with concerns about his age is to make jokes about it. That joke is showing up on Joe Biden's official Instagram account, right? That's right. Yeah. So they're, that's that's their way of sort of counteracting some of these, um, you know, n- there are a lot of memes on the Internet of Joe Biden tripping over his words right. or maybe looking confused. The RNC actually put an, an ad or a YouTube ad that sort of spliced them all together. I think those are a little bit unfair. I mean, one, Joe Biden suffers from a stutter uh, or has kind of overcome a stutter throughout his life. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's some of that going on with his speech patterns. But yes, there are various things beyond just the Biden tripping on the Internet that makes him look old or fumbling or feeble. A recent poll shows that 77 percent of American adults think that Biden is too old for a second term. So is that meme helping Biden? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's – I should say – with with those poll numbers, it's also a majority of Democrats or a, or a plurality of Democrats. I mean, most people think yeah. this he's too old. I mean, I think it's— Trump is a spring chicken of, what, 77? Yeah, he's four years younger than Biden. And looks fabulous. <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're dealing with an American public that is upset. upset. I would say yes. that both of their candidates are— Of an age. Old. Let's use the word, David. Old, by any standard. So— Online, we're not seeing left-leaning memes at all when we it are. comes to politics? We are. Um, you know, I think the most the most prominent one, which I do talk about in the piece, is uh, the Dark Brandon meme. So explain what that is. Okay. It's it's complicated. So it it's a dark—the Dark Brandon meme is a left-wing meme derived from the right-wing meme, Let's Go Brandon. Let's Go Brandon <laughs> is a— um, polite way of saying F Joe Biden. So the dark Brandon meme sprung up on um, what we call dirtbag left mm-hmm. Twitter. And it was basically anytime Joe Biden got sort of a policy wing, win early in his administration, um, sort of to counteract the feeble narrative of Joe Biden, these these guys, and they're mostly guys, would tweet out images of like, Biden in his aviator, but with lasers coming out of his eyes, or like Emperor Palpatine hands shooting out thunderbolts. <laughs> and it was basically like, he's not a daughter and grandpa. He's this sort of powerful dark lord who gets it done in Washington. And they now, the campaign now sells t-shirts of the dark Brandon meme. Now, you say that the the right does this better. They're better at memes, or at least you're, you're sourced it in this, in this piece. And at the same time, there seems to be memes all over the internet about Trump's affection for um, fast food, for example. So I think the bi- the sort of famous meme is um, when he invited the Clemson football team after right. they won the national championship. They came to the White House during a, sh- a partial shut- government shutdown, right. and so Trump on you know silver Washington silver uh, served served them. Um, McDonald's, Domino's, just like a host of fast food. And there's an amazing picture of him with his arms outstretched, basically. So that meme works for him, I not think against it, Biden. I mean, it, it it was sort of affectionately... There were certainly, you know, liberals who made fun of him on Twitter. You know, people have been making fun of Trump for his bad eating habits and appearance for a long time. But then people on the right were like, you elitist. This this man exactly. is in touch with yeah. the, the pulse of America. People like fast food and so does Donald Trump and like... You might not have a pulse after that meal, but you can. It's relatable, as they say. It's relatable, and he and he, you know, he 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 leans in. He knows that he is a figure of 
um, he's a caricature, and he knows that. I oh, mean, he plays with it. Yeah, and in fact, if you look at when he was uh, booked and had his mugshot taken, right, he had that sort of famous glowering to the camera picture. Um, Which he apparently rehearsed. Yes, <laughs> and, and I think we could all tell that. Yeah, you know, it's sort yeah. of, it is, it is an amazing visual representation of our, of our time, and Trump tweeted it out himself. So it became a meme for him it, everywhere. It became a meme. Um, I mean, he's. It, it was basically then made into T-shirts. Sure, people on the left wing made fun of him, but Trump knew that was going to happen. He knew it was going to be the news of the day, and he very cannily asserted his own control over it and gave and his outlaw cred. Exactly, his outlaw cred gave his gave his. Um, you know, gave his supporters basically signal to them, this is how we're going to handle this. This is going to be our line of response So to this. is the meme format uniquely effective at taking something that in the old sense would be bad coverage and turning it into a positive? It can be. I mean, it can spin both ways. It's bas- Memes are basically like the updated political cartoon, right? I mean, you know, so— um, Which barely exists anymore. Which, you know— yeah, here. <laughs> no, no, no. Here. I mean, political cartoons used to be a staple of what used to be called newspapers <laughs> across the country, and everybody had a Herb Block or Tolls or whomever, and it, it's 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 a smaller tribe now. I I think that there, you know, you can you can be hurt by memes as a politician, as I think Biden probably is. Do any memes ever end up hurting Trump, or is he just immune from that because of the nature of his? I don't know, his persona. I think it's, I think he is probably hurt by them to a certain extent, but to a lesser degree, what, a much ones? lesser degree. Which one's than, hurt? Um, I do think, well, let me back up and say that I think it's all impacted by polarization. So um, I do think there is a slice of people who are ambivalent about whether or not they're going to vote for Trump. And I think you could, for some of those people, the memes of him you know, the mugshot or when Trump sort of, you know, is is uh, talking back to the Manhattan judge or, you know, making sort of puerile statements like those are those are things that I think can go out into the ether. And some people will say, you know, if they're a supporter of his, look at this guy. He's like really sticking it to the man. It's mm-hmm. a witch hunt. And other people will be like, geez, this guy. I mean, is this really what we, you know, the the, acu- the accumulation of bad stuff is going to happen all over again if we if we reelect him. And by the way, when I when I reached out to the Biden campaign to ask for their response, yeah. they basically said, you know, our internal polling shows that most um you know, target voters. That's that's a, that's what they use. And what does that mean? It means basically, I think, like independents who are potentially swayable uh-huh. towards Vi- Biden in crucial states. Yes. Well, they didn't specify, but uh, yeah, well, I think we could probably yeah. uh, infer that most of those people think don't don't know, aren't sure that Donald Trump is going to win the Republican primary. And the implication there was once they do realize that he's going to be the nominee for president, there there's a good likelihood they're they're going to get sick of him and. It's not so much a defense of against Joe Biden being old so much as a, well, people are going to be annoyed f- by Trump again, well, and they'll I, forget I, about how much they think Biden is too old for office. In the Quinnipiac poll, he comes out 6% ahead of Trump in the popular vote. Now, that's yet to be confirmed by other polls. We'll see how this matches up with others. It's polls themselves, as we've learned to our absolute devastation. Or how uh, they do are, in swing states. Yeah, or yeah. how they do in swing states. It, it, it's, it's, it's a momentary phenomenon, to be sure. But this is the first poll that he's had that is at all encouraging to the Democratic Party in a very long time. Do memes have... Does humor 
and memes have any effect on voters, do you think? I, I mean, my— It's okay if we're just having a good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my theory, my theory about American politics is, especially in the past, you know, decade, is basically um, none of it's really policy. It's all political pheromones. You like the cut of the person's <laughs> jib. You, you kind of like, yeah, that guy. And that's yeah. really what it's all about. So if the person— parries back with humor that you like and it and it seems to be done well and it's not corny then yeah or maybe vi- it or works. vicious or vicious yes oh, then, that, that's ba- that's baked into the brand too i hate to, <laughs> to combine two cliches in one short sentence let's turn to something much more important than the 2024 um election and the stakes of democracy in general taylor swift and travis kelsey now this romance has become a kind of cottage industry of conspiracy thinking. What has been showing up online and what are the key memes there? <laughs> this, I mean, this I mean one, let's this. just take it really low here. <laughs> I mean, enough with this high-minded stuff. <laughs> this one I didn't I didn't actually see this one coming, which shame on me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, the new conspiracy theory is uh, that Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift's romance is a Democratic or maybe deep state operation to win Joe Biden the presidency because if both of them endorse Joe Biden, then it will be— Unfair? I guess. A coup. It will—you know, the the idea is basically like the NFL and Taylor Swift are— you know, along with complaining about airlines, the thing that all Americans that can noted, get behind. That noted left-wing organization, the National Football League. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but this was this was going, I mean, this wasn't just like a meme and like, you know, weird right-wing Reddit. No, it was, it it was, was on, on Fox. Fox. It's been on Fox it's, every night. Yeah. Dark Brandon doesn't get bogged down on details. He can't name a Taylor Swift song. Taylor Swift can't name a Biden policy. This relationship was engineered in a lab. And Taylor's boyfriend, sponsored by Pfizer, it is a match made in corporate heaven. Could you imagine if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl? Does any of this mean anything? Or there's just, you know, a, a little bone for us to chew on for a while? I think it might be a bone for us to chew on, maybe some Super Bowl promo. And here we I, are chewing. And here we are <laughs> chewing, chewing on like it. like yeah. I mean, I was just, uh, Ross Douthat had a, had a little thing in the New York Times, and I think he, he made a pretty good point, which was basically... Taylor Swift has endorsed in an election before she endorsed in the midterms in, I think, 2018, um, and her her candidate lost, you know. So it's not necessarily—I mean, again, Tennessee is a deep red state, and that's where she sort of made a very public endorsement. But will will Taylor Swift swing in the 2024 election? Hey, okay, maybe not, but maybe, you know, Biden is sort of unappealing to younger voters, maybe— if Taylor's, I don't know, just getting out the vote in, in Wisconsin. Is there any history of a celebrity endorsement having a decisive impact either in the era of memes or before? I don't know. I want to say like maybe during the like the Obama era, but that was really more like uh, certain political influencers in the primary kind of said to like – to vote to to black voters in particular, it's okay to vote for him. Like you should. Oh, but John Lewis, you be a, was, right? He's was not. not, a I'm not like, was, no, such. I know. But was I'm try, now I'm trying to, and you you know better than I. Like was Oprah so oh, early that's, that's, so that's early to Obama that it was influential? God, it's going to be a long, long campaign. Claire Malone, <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for having me, David. You can read Claire Malone's column on the media and politics at NewYorker.com. 
The Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in a case that could have tremendous impact on the presidential election. This is the Colorado case, deciding whether Donald Trump should be eligible to be on the ballot in the state of Colorado. The plaintiffs, who include a 91-year-old Republican, argue that Trump should be disqualified because of a clause in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Jill Lepore, a historian and staff writer for The New Yorker, joins our podcast, The Political Scene, this week to talk about the history behind that amendment and the stakes of the case. The reason this case exists is that Republicans in the Senate failed to do their constitutional duty and convict Donald Trump of impeachment in January of 2021. And I think that's really important to remember. The proper way the to deal with the insurrection on January 6th was indeed to impeach Donald Trump, which the House did, and then the Senate by a very narrow margin, failed to reach the two-thirds majority rate. It has now come out in several memoirs that some of the, I believe it was 10 senators that were needed to convict Trump, were persuaded to vote against conviction because of threats against their families. And Mitch McConnell said, of course, at the time that he voted against convicting Trump of impeachment because he thought this was a matter for the criminal courts. That was the wrong decision, right? Trump should have been impeached and he would have then been disqualified. The criminal prosecutions that are now proceeding very, very slowly are, you know, another way to confront the problem of a president who has engaged in insurrection. But this is not the best solution. That's Jill Lepore speaking on The Political Scene, a podcast from The New Yorker. This is The New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. If you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. 
This take-no-prisoners approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. What should I play? I haven't even tried this piano yet. Why don't we play a little bit of a piece that I think you might know? It's a new season of the Open Ears Project. I'm Terrence McKnight, here with stories from people who share the piece of classical music that guided them through some of the most important chapters in their lives. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In 2018, the New Yorker published an essay about reckoning with the death of a mother. It was called Crying in H Mart, and its author was Michelle Zahner, the musician who fronts the band Japanese Breakfast. It was a lovely essay, and she kept writing and writing and expanded the essay into a book finally, a memoir about culture and family and loss and food. A lot of food. People say they got hungry reading her descriptions of cooking Korean dishes with her mother. Crying in H Mart, the book, spent over a year on the bestseller list. H Mart is freedom from the single-aisle ethnic section in regular grocery stores. They don't prop Goya beans next to bottles of sriracha here. Instead, you'll likely find me crying by the banchan refrigerators, remembering the taste of my mom's soy sauce eggs and cold radish soup, or in the freezer section, holding a stack of dumpling skins, thinking of all the hours that mom and I spent at the kitchen table folding minced pork and chives into the thin dough, sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? That's Michelle Zahner, reading from Crying in H Mart. At the New Yorker Festival recently, Zahner sat down to talk with the New Yorker's Hua Xu. And it was really a meeting of minds because Hua also wrote a memoir called Stay True, which won the Pulitzer Prize last year. Both extraordinary books. And here's Hua Xu speaking with Michelle Zahner. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm very nervous. Um, no, you're not. I am, yes. He was like eating a Rice Krispie treat like right before we went on. I was like, wow, you're so chill. Like walking uh, up the stairs with a Rice Krispie treat. I can't believe you told everyone that I did that. Um, <laughs> so uh, the book, which I'm sure everyone here has read, Crying in H Mart. I guess I'm contractually obliged to ask you uh, whether people recognize you at H Mart. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't get recognized in H Mart very often. And actually, like, the only time I've wanted to, like, bust out any, like, celebrity cred is, yeah. like, when, like, the security guard at the, like, East Village location was, like, really mean to me. And I wanted, like, I couldn't figure out how to put the, like, basket in the cart. And he was, like, really mean about it. And I wanted to be like, do you know who I am? You should have, like, pointed to the monitor. Yeah, Because they have yeah. that video. They don't there, have right? them there. That's probably why. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Even when I did that, though, I was, like, checking out at, like, a register, and I was like, oh, that's me. The Ajumo was really <laughs> just like, up, like, I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take your rice and go. <laughs> so the book grew out of an essay you wrote for The New Yorker. Thank you, and you're also welcome. <laughs> um, so I'm just curious, like, when you finished the book 
and, and the book comes out, like, how did you change over the course of writing it, if you feel like you did? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but I mean, I, I think that writing memoir really forces you to have, um, like, some radical compassion for people that you may or may not feel ready to have or like want want to have you know I mean there is a first version of this book that was so angry um at my dad and at myself and and at every person in my life and you know one really beautiful thing about writing a book is that it takes so much time and it it forces you to have so much perspective you know when I submitted the rough draft I I didn't get it back for three or four months so when I I reread it I think I didn't realize I was so angry and how, how, how much I was holding in and how much I really needed to let go if I wanted to tell this story honestly and fairly. And so I think I was able to, to see, um, you know, other perspectives a bit more clearly and, and find a lot of forgiveness um, for myself and, and the people that were involved in this very difficult time in all of our lives. You know, I'm wondering, like, how did your relationship to your mother change uh, after you finished writing this? I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of her. I, I don't know if you... I mean, I, I know you don't want to talk about stage true, but I, I had such a wonderful... I mean, I'm talking to a Pulitzer-winning writer right now um, who has an amazing memoir called Stay True, and uh, I, I read it this week and, and enjoyed it so much. And, you know, it's, it's impossible to not think about... Um, how very similar they are and also how very different. One, one thing I thought was sort of interesting was, um, you know, the first line of my book is, ever since my mom died, I cry in H-Mart. And so much of your book is, is I, I, I mean, it, it's really not mentioned until, I mean, it's a discovery that sort of happens uh, that, that your friend is, uh, has has died and um, it's it's sort of towards like the end of not, I don't think that's spoiling anything it was sort of towards the end of the book and um, it's interesting to see how differently we handled grief and 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 sharing this story of loss but for me personally it was such a joy to kind of try to ex- see things from my mother's side and and share um, parts of her and I think part of the joy of being a writer is like being a sort of detective and um, unraveling parts of their person. And, and I think I learned so much more uh, about, I had such a, I feel like I had a deeper understanding and I felt much closer to her after, after writing the book. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, you're a detective, you're also sort of like a time traveler. Like you can sort of go back and relive things that you may not have appreciated the first time around. And I also think it was like proof that I really loved this person because my mom and I had such a tumultuous relationship um, that I, I almost felt like I needed to get the facts straight that we really loved each other. It was just complicated and I felt this need to prove that. Um, and I feel like, you know, towards the end of the book, you, you also kind of confront that where you're like, were we really as close as I, I thought we were? And you're sort of like convincing yourself and exploring this relationship and all of its complexities. Um, and, and, validating for that for yourself of like yeah we did really love each other we were really connected and close and I think that was a part of the that writing process as well um so you know one thing that uh I, I talked to you about a year and a half ago I think and at the time you were working on adapting your memoir for the screen is there anything you can share about sort of like your approach or how you're how you're going to think about doing it 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I, you know, didn't write very much about um, in the book was, you know, my 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 musical life, um, and I just love. I mean, that was such a big part of my my teenage years was like that sort of discovery, and I think. Also, towards the end of the book, I sort of began to realize, you know, I, I didn't want anyone to get confused that this was like, um, you know, this is how it became Shell's Honor of Japanese Breakfast. Like, I'm not like Keith Richards or something. But I, I, so I think I just was, I really like avoided writing too much about it until I realized like that was a really big part of my, um, you know, major rift with my, my mother. It was a really big part of our relationship. And when we sort of started to, um, argue with one another was this like this calling I felt I had and this and this real passion that she was so um, confused by and so uh, against and you know it's just such a different craft it's really it's really funny you have to find like I started make compiling a list of like adverbs because you have to like describe you know leaving a room or smiling or looking at someone in like so many different ways and you have to be really smart and short about it and it's almost like there's this kind of like ad agency like lingo um so it's, it's quite different <laughs> so there was this moment um i don't know if it was la- i've lost complete track of like the last two years but um there was this moment where you perform with karen o yeah. and also the linda lindas yeah and you posted this like incredibly like moving note where you you talked about sort of Karen O's role in sort of like being able to understand yourself and see yourself. Um, I, I do feel like it is uh, like a generational thing where it, it, it does seem like a lot of younger artists, particularly in this AAPI space, are kind of looking out for each other in a way that may not have been as obvious in the 80s or 90s when there was like more competition. I was really lucky and, and so much of my um, career was... was assisted by Mitski, who took me on tour in 2016 and it was really cool to have you know at the time like she was like the hot Asian girl in indie and like she could have like really like coveted that position and not wanted to like share and and I feel like one thing that's really cool about our generation is that like we've really started to dissect that like internalized misogyny and racism and 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 try to like lend a helping hand whereas like maybe even in the 90s like they would pit women against each other and um it would be hard not to kind of believe that and um it's really nice now I feel like we have such a wonderful community where like we're really helping each other and and are trying to push for uh, you know bringing each other on tour and, and and sharing each other's work and supportive having like a supportive network with one another and so I, I try to 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 take part in that that's awesome um you you're moving soon yeah so I'm moving to Korea to live for a year and work on my second book where I am going to study the language and and document that process and um I think it was such a natural response to writing a book that was so rooted in um, the past and so much of what was hard about it was like, it was so obviously emotional, but also, um, you know, it was hard to remember all of that. So I'm really looking forward to writing about, uh, you know, the day-to-day experience of living in another country and, and learning a language. Yeah, I guess like the thing I'm most worried about is uh, just like being too dumb to learn. Because I, you know, I've always 
I've gone to Koreans. I never like cared um, enough about it until you know you get older and you like start paying for school and tutors yourself. But um, and I'm really curious like how how it will go to be fully immersed and have my one job to be a student. And uh, I'm most excited to just be completely consumed by one thing. I just want to do one thing and to like go to school and focus on one. Um, skill. Wait, you're going to be an actual like student. student? Yeah, I'm going to go to classes and I'm most excited um, to like live in a city where people have manners because um, <laughs> I think that, you know, our country is getting out of hand. I'm so looking forward to everyone standing to one side of the escalator. Yeah. <laughs> that is what I'm like most excited about. And the idea of like someone not watching a video on their phone on the subway without headphones. Like there's no way anyone in Korea is doing that. And I'm looking forward to never being around that for a full year. <laughs> that does sound great. <laughs> That's all we have time for. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Michelle Zahner is the author of Crying in H-Mart and leads the band Japanese Breakfast. She spoke with Hua Xu. Hua's memoir is called Stay True, and you can read him on all matter of things at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for joining me this hour. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell. With guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.